Uh, for those joining us tonight, maybe for the first time, we have been going through First and First and Second Kings, and tonight we are in chapter six, looking at the first twenty-three verses, and we'll be looking tonight specifically at the topic of miracles of restoration and deliverance. Miracles of restoration and deliverance. I give them a minute to get those handouts to you. I tell you what you do while we wait to get started. You silence your phones. Seriously. They're normally in. They're normally playing a concert in here on Wednesday nights, the phones. I took mine out to the car. <laughs> okay. Everybody got a page? Miracles of restoration and deliverance. Verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees, but as one was felling a log... His axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I might may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw... And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Folks, you know, there's a rich history in the Bible of older men training younger men in ministry. I think of the Apostle Paul writing the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And uh, you look at 2nd Timothy and you can see these charges that he gives to Timothy and how Timothy is likewise to train others and disciple others who in turn will disciple others. In Titus, we see Paul's words, Titus 2, about older men mentoring younger men, older women mentoring younger women. And so all throughout the Bible you can see this, how those already in the faith and those who are maturing in the faith are to disciple and mentor those under them. And what does that show us? It shows us that we're not just to be concerned about ourselves. We're to be concerned about raising up the next generation of believers and the next generation of servants of the Lord. Now, as we come to 2 Kings 6, we see in the first story much of that going on here with Elisha and those underneath him who were a part of the school of the prophets. And of course, we know that Elisha had been under Elijah. So now there are about three schools of the prophets that we've been introduced to through First and Second Kings both. And this is not the first time we've run across the schools of the prophets. And today's passage has to do with one of those. And it's a story of ministry restored. I want you to notice the setting. The setting picks up from the end of chapter 4. Not the end of chapter 5, but the end of chapter 4. And what we see here is that the school of the prophets is too crowded. Now what a wonderful problem to have. It kind of reminds me of the early church in Acts chapter 6 where we see the formation of deacons. The church was growing at such a rapid rate that the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. Uh, it wasn't intentional, I don't think. It was just because of the way the body of Christ was growing. Here we see the school of the prophets growing, and it's presenting a problem. 
And I want you to notice the plan. The plan's to enlarge. And back then, you didn't call up an architectural firm and have uh, contractors to put out bids. You did the work yourself. And so they get busy doing that. And I want you to notice the first point, that everybody has a job to do. Verse 2 says, let us go to the Jordan and each of us there get a log. Each of us. What a great principle in the kingdom of God. Each of us has a place in God's kingdom work. It's a joint work. God does his work, but how does he do it? He does it through human hands. Kind of reminds me too of when Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem and they were rebuilding the walls. Remember how he had every family work on that section that was in front of their home? Everybody got involved. Everybody had a part to play. You know, it's sad today how people only want to go into situations oftentimes that are, that are ready-made. They look at churches with the thought, what's in it for me? What can this church do for me? What can this one do for me? What can that one do for me? You know, I think of a politician back in the 60s in that famous speech. What, did it, what was the question he said people ought to be asking? Exactly. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. What a wonderful attitude that would be to have in the church. Uh, we need more of that attitude in government too. Everybody seems to be looking after themselves. It's a sad environment today. Sort of an entitlement attitude going on. But here they're all willing to pitch in. They're all willing to do the work. They're all willing to take their share. And they also want to make sure Elisha stays with them. It's good for teachers to hang out with their students. It's good for pastors to hang out with their church people. Good for Sunday school teachers and their members to hang out together. Uh, it's, it's a healthy modeling and building relationships. I remember with great fondness some of the mission trips I've been on with groups here. The men that went with me to South Africa uh, when we were working with J-Life and we were working there at their main location. Um, I remember going to Kennedy Homes and when a bunch of us were working on that humongous barn out back and Dr. Willis was there and Gary Klein was there and we were working with the kids at night in the buildings uh, in the day. Uh, just, just very fond memories of that. Well, they want Elisha there with them and, and he goes. I want you to see secondly though in verses 4 and 5, problems can occur even in the midst of doing God's work. This one prophet has his axe head fly off. You might say he loses his edge. This happens to people. Sometimes it happens to people in funny ways, doesn't it? Like in Modesto, California, Stephen Richard King was arrested for trying to hold up a Bank of America branch without a weapon. King used a thumb and a finger tucked into his coat pocket. But when he went in to do the hold-up, he drew his hand out of his pocket. 
or another one on, on Lake Isabel, located an hour east of Bakersfield, California. I don't know what it is about these California folks. Uh, some folks who were brand new to boating were having problems. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't get their new 22-foot uh, boat going properly. It was sluggish. It didn't matter how much they got into the throttle or what they tried to do, they just couldn't hardly get it to go. And after about an hour of trying, they finally pulled into a nearby marina and wanted to have some workers there look at it. Well, the, the workers there checked the boat up and down. They went side to side. They checked the engine, the fuel line. They checked everything. Everything was in perfect working condition. The engine was fine. The prop, everything was, was ideal. They couldn't find a single thing wrong with the boat. Finally, one of the marine workers dove in the water. He wanted to go under the boat and look. He came up choking on the water. He was laughing so hard. <laughs> The people had not unstrapped the boat from the boat trailer. <laughs> True story. Funny things can happen while people are doing stuff. Well, this guy's axe handle falls off. Did, did you ever realize that right in the middle, even serving the Lord, things can go wrong? Mission trip people will talk to us right in the middle of doing stuff. Some kind of plan they had just kind of went haywire. And they had to go a different direction. You ever been on a trip like that? Pretty common. Things don't always happen the way you plan. Things go wrong. Even while you're doing the Lord's work. Why do you think that happens? I'll say especially when you're doing the Lord's work. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think that happens? Maybe Satan. Might be even God Himself testing you, right? To see if you're going to rely on Him or not. But on a side note, let me say, better to have things go wrong while you're working diligently for the Lord rather than just sitting back and being lazy and not doing anything. Right? I might be speaking to somebody here tonight, neglect might be your issue. Uh, maybe this guy had not paid attention to his, his axe and the axe handle. We don't know, but he recognized what had happened. Uh, the prophet runs to Elisha, lets him know what happens. Elisha asks questions to learn what happened. Uh, maybe something's happened with you as you're working for the Lord. Have, have you recognized it? Was it neglect? Was it prayerlessness? Folks, we've got to realize we're only stewards. This guy had a borrowed axe. It wasn't even his. It was valuable. Iron was valuable back then at this time. And he's worried about losing something that belonged to somebody else. We need to see that the tools that we've been given for ministry belong to God. We're only stewards. 1 Corinthians 4 says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. 
You know, chances are if you've borrowed something, you're going to be extra careful with it, right? Are we just as careful with the gifts and talents we've been given from God? Because again, they're borrowed. He's loaned these to us. Are we concerned about the welfare of things God has given to us? A third thing I want you to see, God can restore what we've lost. Verses 6 and 7. Through a miracle, Elisha returned the axe head to this student. Don't ask me how God made iron float, but I believe He did. You know, sometimes we expect too little of God, don't we? We don't even ask. Uh, talking today in the office, talking to Kevin Seeger and Leslie talking about this passage. Kevin said, let me tell you a story. Uh, he said that David Fink reminds me of occasionally. Back in spring of 2009, on a Sunday morning, it was I think it was Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday, we got word that Brianna may not make it. And she was being airlifted from northeast to Duke. Some of you in here remember that Sunday. Kevin went on up to the hospital uh, I went on in, we were starting church, and I called the church together for prayer. Kevin said he got there outside the ER at the helicopter pad, and they had the helicopter island, had Brianna loaded on. All the crew and the Fink family was gathered around. There was a problem. It was terribly windy that morning. It wasn't letting up. I mean, terrible gust. And the crew and the pilot had said, we got to go, but we can't. Uh, we just can't. So Kevin gathered everybody around in a circle and they prayed and they asked God to stop the wind. Kevin said, I can't explain it. Maybe it was coincidence, maybe not. He said, but within seconds, Scott, the wind totally ceased and it was calm. And the crew looked at one another and they were like, jump on, let's go. And they got out of there. Miracles. Looking at our text, compared to the other miracles of Elisha, this one might seem a bit insignificant, retrieving an axe head. But you know what? That might be the point, right? God's concerned even about the little things. In verse 8, moving on, we see the next event, and I want you to see, fourthly, God sees all. God sees all. Verses 8 through 12. These, these verses describes some of the border skirmishes that would often occur between Israel and Syria. Now remember what I told you last week, don't get confused between Syria and Assyria. It, it, if you think about the sea being here, the Mediterranean and Israel, and of course you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Egypt down here. You have Syria right here to the north border in Israel. Assyria was over here where Nineveh was the capital. So don't get Syria and Assyria mixed up. But there were constant border skirmishes between Syria and Israel. Syria, through Old Testament history, was one of Israel's most pesky neighbors. And a lot of times when 
uh, nations like Babylon or Assyria would begin to uh, wane in their power, and maybe Egypt would begin to wane in its power, Syria would kind of kick it up a notch. They would see their opportunity to maybe exercise more of their influence over the region. So these skirmishes were pretty common. And don't we continue to see in the news today all these all these skirmishes between Israel and her neighbors. Uh, it might be Hezbollah from the north, Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza Strip. They might be launching miss missiles into Israel. I mean, this has gone on uh, throughout history. It's the ongoing battle between Isaac and Ishmael, isn't it? So verse 8, you could read verse 8 just as likely out of a modern-day newspaper. But what's going on here? As the king of Syria is making his plans to take his army and attack Israel, what was God's prophet doing? Warning the king of Israel, telling him what's about to happen. So what's the natural conclusion of that? Verse 11 says the king of Syria was what? He was enraged. He thinks he's got a traitor in his own ranks. Who's leaving this army and going and telling the Israelites where we're about to go and attack them? Who's doing this? we got a traitor. And verse 12 tells us somebody in the Syrian army knew all about Elisha. How did he know? We don't know. Maybe Naaman. Some of his fellow soldiers uh, reported what God had done. The occasion we read back in chapter 5 last week. Maybe Naaman, some of them went back talking about Elisha. That would seem pretty reasonable, wouldn't it? But what we need to see here is God's in control. God is sovereign. God sees everything. Psalm 139. What's, what's David say there? Where can I go from your spirit? You know, if I go this direction, that direction, that direction, that direction, you're there. God, you're everywhere. Your presence is with me everywhere. You see it. You know my faults from afar, even before I think them. You number my days before I live even one of them. God saw God's in control. And that ought to give us comfort as God's people. God is more than able to watch over us. But it ought to be a warning too. God's able to frustrate our plans if we're in disobedience to Him. The king of Syria is a perfect example of how most people are today. They just think they're going to go here and there and do this or that, and they can control their own destiny. But folks, as believers, we need to subject everything to God's will because He sees all and knows all. And He's revealed His plans to Elisha. And Elisha, in turn, is able to warn the king of Israel. God sees everything. God sees everything about your life. All of your plans are all of your plans put before Him. You know, in the book of James, James 4, the people were chastised, the business people, because they were making their plans a year out about what they were going to do, their travels. 
and where they were going to go and buy and sell and trade and make a profit. And, and James says, don't you know life is a vapor? You're here today and gone tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say if it's God's will. All of our plans need to pass before God because He knows all and sees all. He knew everything about what the king of Syria was planning and He revealed it to Elisha who revealed it to the king of Israel. God sees all. A fifth truth. God is able to watch over us and deliver us. We see that beginning there in verse 13. The king of Syria decides that if God is telling Elisha everything, who in turn is telling the king of Israel, then what's he need to do with Elisha? He needs to find Elisha and seize him. Think what flawed logic this is anyway. If Elisha is able to see his attacks against Israel, he should have known that Elisha could see him coming for him also. Right? But he finds out where Elisha is and he sends an army against him. He's told Elisha is down in Dothan. And Eddie, this is not Dothan, Alabama. Okay? <laughs> the next morning, Elisha's servant, not Gehazi that we saw in chapter 5, because remember, he was stricken with Naaman's leprosy when he got greedy. So he's in all likelihood been replaced by somebody else. But anyway, this servant sees the army of Syria surrounding them, and he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Because he only sees from his perspective. Isn't that the problem with us today? We tend to only see our enemies or our problems from our perspective. We'll look at a failure in our life like a job loss and might conclude it's curtains for us. In reality, God may be opening a better door for you. We'll look at death as just separation and we fail to see if the person was a believer. It was victory for them and we'll see them again someday. Young people may look at a, a breakup as utter disaster. God may be leading them to somebody else better for their life. The problem with Elisha's servant is he's like this. He's just looking at the problem and all of these enemies from his perspective and, and he's scared. And look at Elisha's response there in verse 18. Classic. When the Syrians... Well, let me back up. Verse 16, rather. Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In verse 17, he prays for his servant's eyes to be opened. And when God opened the servant's eyes, he saw God's army of angels all around. Folks, God's people never face enemies alone. God is with us. God doesn't deliver everybody like this, obviously, but we need to see that God is with us. Paul says in Romans 8 that there is nothing that is going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. 
Neither angels nor demons, no principality or power, not even life or death or any trial or tribulation is going to separate us from God's presence with us. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 that God even has His angels as servants to His children. I wonder if only our eyes could be open. I wonder how many times maybe we've been spared from a disaster by an angel. Maybe going through an intersection or something. Have you ever read Billy Graham's book, Angels? In the opening of that book, he tells the story about a neurologist in Philadelphia who went to bed one night bone tired and there was a terrible snowstorm. And he was getting sleep and a knock came on his door. A persistent knock. He gets up, goes to the door and there's a little girl standing there begging him to come with her. Her mom's sick. He gets to the house and sure enough, the mom is bedridden with pneumonia and she's, she's bad. The doctor stays there and treats her through the night. Uh, she's beginning to get a little better and when she communicates with the doctor, he said, good thing your daughter came and got me. And she said, Doctor, my daughter died a month ago. And he described what the little girl was wearing. And she, the, the lady said, look in that closet right there. And he, he said he opened the closet and there was the exact jacket and shoes that that little girl had on. And they were bone dry and warm. Angels. Now, we don't focus on them like Christians were doing about 25 years ago. Angel, everything was about angels. Angels this, angels that. Go to Christian bookstores, angels. All kinds of trinkets and books. and Everybody was preaching on angels. We don't focus on angels. We focus on Jesus. But thank God that God sends angels to be servants to believers, right? And that's what's going on here. And, and God did open the servant's eyes. He was able to see. And at the same time, notice what Elijah prays that will happen to the enemy. That the Syrian army, that blindness would strike them. And that's what happens. Folks, I think how in the Gospels, until it was time for Jesus to go to the cross. His enemies couldn't seize him. It's not that they didn't have opportunity. Jesus was right there in their midst. Uh, they could have overpowered him. The temple guard was there too. But it wasn't his time. So Jesus would slip right through the crowds. Uh, God supernaturally protected Elisha and his servants here. He struck them with blindness. And then in verse 19, Elisha convinces them that he's going to lead them to the man they're looking for, and he leads them straight into Samaria and, and right into the hands of the king of Israel and his army. And then God opens their eyes and they saw how God had turned the tides. And now instead of them surrounding Elisha and Elisha's servant, now they're surrounded by the king of Israel and his army. They're in trouble. This 
was nothing short of a miraculous deliverance. Protection of Elisha, protection of Israel's army. But what's just as miraculous too is the way they were handled from there. The king of Israel looks to Elisha and says, what should I do now? Should I kill him? But notice what Elisha does. Gives a very Christ-like answer, doesn't he? He says, no, they're prisoners. Feed them and let them go. What's Romans 12 tell us to do with our enemies? Love your enemies. Feed them. Pray for them. Be like burning coals on their head, right? Be kind to them. Do good to them. That's, that's what the king of Israel does. Folks, give him credit that, I mean, he has the king of Syria and the Syrian army right there. I mean, he could have easily gone ahead and taken them out, right? Been done with them. But he doesn't do that. He listens to the man of God. And he does what Elisha tells, tells him to do. He feeds them. He sends them on their way. <laughs> and look at the effect that it has. Notice what happens. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Isn't that remarkable? Now, you know, later on they're going to reverse position and then one of the kings is going to say, why didn't, why didn't we kill them while we had the chance? And they're going to be mad at Elisha. But for now, the Syrians decide, hey, you know what, look at how we've been treated. And they go back home. And we're going to leave them alone. We're not going to keep up these raids on Israel. <clears throat> That's the effect that the good deed of feeding the Syrian army had. Treating their enemies like this. Maybe you got an enemy. And you despise him or her. Boy, any chance you'd get to get a dig in at them or something or do something to harm them, you would. As a Christian, you need to change stuff. And do like Christ said. Pray for them. Do good things for them. If vengeance is involved, you let God take care of that. But as far as it's concerned, Paul says, be at peace with all men. As far as you're concerned. If what, what you have to do with the situation, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Pray for those who despite... Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, those who uh, spitefully use you and speak all manner of evil against you, pray for them and be kind to them. And you never know what that might end up accomplishing. Your enemy might even be one to the Lord through your act. Right? How many marriages could be saved this way too? And families put back together. Churches restored. 
companies not divine. Let me give you some lessons tonight. Lesson number one, if you've lost your edge in ministry, be transparent and learn from what's happened. Have you been negligent? Trust God to do a fresh work in you. Second lesson, recognize that you're only a steward of all that God has given you. What are you doing with what He's blessed you with? What are you doing with what He's blessed you with? Thirdly, there's nothing in your life that's outside God's watch care. All of life is lived under God's watchful eye. Do I need to slow down? Can I keep going? Fourth, our eyes need to be open to seeing more of life from God's perspective. You know, if we would do that, this would no doubt lead to less worrying and fretting. Plus, we'd make wiser decisions, wouldn't we? Our eyes need to be open to seeing more of life from God's perspective. And then lastly, we need to find practical ways to love our enemies as we have opportunity. So again, we see in chapter 6, you could write a heading over chapter 6. Restoration and miracles. Restoration and miracles. Anything I missed that you picked up on? Or any comment you have? And I used it for many more years. 
that uh, it was uh, liquid, uh, liquid zinc. It was molten zinc. And I said, wow, I almost lost that hammer. And uh, uh, just praise the Lord. So that was the way of, you know, it was very important for me, that particular tool. Yeah. It seemed like a simple tool, but not, nobody had a hammer like that one. <laughs> it was, yeah. But uh, I just praise the Lord that he watched it. And so I thought of that with sure. Elijah. Uh, and uh, so there, you know. Really Are you working on that book? I've told you, you've got an antidote, a story for all the neat stories you tell, experiences. You need to write all these down. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a true, true story. It was a terrible, it's a galvanizing plant. Hmm. They dip it in uh, the, the water, the sulfuric acid, then they hit. And what happens is when it hits, if there's any bit of moisture on the steel before they put it in the zinc, it pops. And sometimes it'll go 30 feet across the room. That's what guys working there would be fire burns, burns on them, you know. But they said when they pulled the guy out, his skin rolled right off of him, you know. But it was a horrible place. It'd be, you know, like I said, for a place to have a rock concert because that's what they they like to have flames. <laughs> it's horrible, horrible. You know, some try to explain this text when Elisha said, hey, show me where it fell. They, they take a big log or something and throw it in there. And the log splashing out stirs the water and the axe head in that upheaval of water. There it is, grab it. You know. However it happened, God did. Uh, and it says God made it flood. So, hey, if you believe Genesis 1-1, you don't have problems with miracles in the Bible, right? 